Amy. I feel like to share this, I don't really know why, but preaching's a funny thing because uh, speaking to somebody before the service about it, but it's like that a sermon is, it's a bit like a, not to push this metaphor too far for those who've actually had children in the room, but it's a bit like uh, a birth of something. You, you know, you go before yet, you've, if you've not done this, you've seen people do this. You go and have an ultrasound, and you sort of see on a screen a sort of fuzzy image of what this baby might look like. But until you've met the baby, you've actually got no idea what the baby's going to look like. And, you know, I do work, believe it or not, I actually work quite hard on this. Um, but all it ever is until the moment of delivery is just an ultrasound picture. I do hours hours and hours of preparation and prayer for this, but it's, I still, when I show up, I still don't know what's going to happen. Um, and, that, and the reason I do that is because I actually want the sermon to be something that's alive. You know, so could I, I could have a script, and I've got some words written down here, and you know, I will be following those to some degree, so don't be too worried. Um, but we want something alive, don't we? And ultimately, that's about the Spirit of God. Only He can do that. And I'm constantly made aware by, uh, as I come to do this, come to preach, just that what I have to bring is just insufficient. And so I want to just join uh, with Amy's prayer, just again to pray that, Lord, you would do something today that would be so much more than the sum of the, the parts. What I've prepared, Lord, it, it isn't actually sufficient. And I offer, you, I offer it to you today, and we offer ourselves and our, our ears and our bodies, our minds and our souls, but really we're asking for you to do what only you can do, and we're asking for the glory to go to you today, in Jesus' name, amen. So some of you know, I've been reading through, as I've been preaching through Jonah, reading through this, this book, The Prodigal Prophet by Tim Keller. If you're looking for somebody to blame uh, for this series on Joan, you might look to the bishop uh, who gave me this book and put me onto it. And I'm just going to read a story from this book. And it's a story that uh, concerns an outpouring of the Spirit of God, a great move of God's Spirit. This is what we read. In January of 1907, a revival broke out at a Bible conference in Pyongyang. What a place for a Revival to break out. No, no, not Pyongyang. A Bible conference. Now the capital of North Korea. Those attending the conference came under deep conviction of sin. Especially when a preacher called them to repent of their traditional hatred of the Japanese. Of course, the Korean Christians had already accepted the fundamental truths of the gospel of grace. And yet these had not sunk in deeply enough for them to forgive the Japanese. They felt morally superior to a nation they saw as oppressive and cruel. In the light of the gospel, however, the Koreans at the conference saw that they stood before God as equally sinful and condemned with all other human beings. Yet rescued by the sheer and costly grace of Christ, this drained away their pride and bitterness. They returned to their homes with a new willingness to repent of wrongdoing. People went house to house repairing relationships and returning stolen articles. The worship services were filled with a new power. The result was explosive growth of the church. 
the Methodist Church, for example, doubled in membership size in a single year. There have been many such spiritual movements across the world in the history of the church. How do we explain such phenomena? Really, that's the question I want to get to today, or begin to address. How do we explain such phenomena? How might we we prepare ourselves for those kinds of phenomena? Because actually, when we look at history, Christian history, I mean, take even the book of Acts, which is the first example, but certainly not the last example throughout history. Moves of God's Spirit in a way like that 1907 Bible conference in Pyongyang are many. There are many, many different examples. History is littered with stories like that where the church seems to move leaps and bounds forward overnight. Where just in a, in a single occasion, it seems, so one meeting where something happens, the glory of God falls, and, and the church seems to just catapult forward in its effectiveness, in its ability to do its job description, to represent Jesus, to show and to spread his love, and people get it. The gospel in these moments moves from people's heads to people's hearts, to people's souls. It becomes part of their very lives. And when that happens, the church just, the church is set on fire. And I know we have this vision statement and it it really isn't intended to be empty rhetoric. We really do believe that God has sent us here as a church. God has established this church in this city because he longs to set his, his people on fire. He longs to see people developing a deeper life in him, a passion. He wants to see people's faith move from their heads to their hearts. So maybe it begins with a faith as an external thing. Moving, being internalized so that we understand it, but we take it into ourselves. And it changes the very essence of who we are and the lives that we lead. I want you to know that is why we are here. We are not here as a church to do business as usual. We're not here to grow a church. We trust, we anticipate, we expect that that will happen. We've seen it happen. It isn't stopping here. We're going to see more people added to our family. That's that's going to be, I, I hope and believe and I trust and I pray, that's going to be the norm here. But the goal Beyond and beneath that and before that is that people would grasp hold of this truth of who Jesus is, not just in some intellectual way, but in a deep heart and soul way, and that God would so set them on fire. That's my prayer for my life. I don't want to tread water as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. And what we see when we come to the story of Jonah is one such wave of transformation. Jonah himself, as George said last week, is the object of God's irrepressible desire. But also the people of Nineveh are completely changed through the story of Jonah. Despite the fact that that was the thing that Jonah wanted to see, least of all. (laughs) The very thing from which he was running. So as we come to Jonah today, I want to ask the question, how might we as a church, as individuals, but also as a community, position ourselves for the kind of renewal that the Ninevites saw, the kind of renewal that the Koreans saw in Pyongyang, and many people have seen since? 
And so we begin by looking at the story of Jonah. Then the word of the Lord came, chapter 3, verse 1, to Jonah a second time. A little bit of background if you've just missed the series, if you've shown up at church for the first time. This is the second time that Jonah's heard the word of the Lord in this way. And that indicates there was, uh, and you'll thank me for this later, that indicates there was a first time. And there was a first time in chapter 1, verse 1, God shows up to Jonah and says, Look, Jonah, as my prophet, I have a message for you. I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach to them. And Jonah says, Well, that's a great commission you've given me, God. And I know as a prophet of the Lord, I should really receive that and obey it. But in fact, I don't want to do that. In fact, I'm going to go in the opposite direction, and so Jonah does. Instead of going towards Nineveh, he flees. He goes to Tarshish, which is exactly the opposite direction, somewhere potentially in southern Spain. Now, those of you who've taken an EasyJet holiday will understand why Jonah goes to the south of Spain rather than Nineveh. But it's a, it's, a, it's a flagrant disobedience of God, and because of this disobedience, God chases him down. He flees after him. Jonah flees from God, but God comes for Jonah. He says, I'm not going to let you go. And he sends this storm, and the storm is, is, is designed to hold Jonah to keep him captivated. And God saves Jonah's life. Jonah's thrown from the ship to save the sailors and God saves Jonah. He swallows him by a big fish. And we pick up the story with Jonah having been spat out on the beach. Drying himself off in the sun perhaps and surely wondering what next. And here, in, in that very place, word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Proclaim to it the message I give you. Thank God for second times. Thank God for second chances. You know, the message that Jonah receives the second time round is identical to the message you received the first time round. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach. Those words are identical. God addresses Jonah at the moment of his greatest failure. Having saved him, he says, Jonah, I've still got work for you to do. Maybe, it was jo- Maybe Jonah was thinking, look what? What else could I do? Here I am spat upon this beach. God has saved me, but I'm finished as a prophet. Surely I'm finished as a prophet. I'm done. I mean, you can't disobey disobey the word of the Lord and still be a prophet. I'm finished. And then the Lord says, no, you're not finished, Jonah. I've got work for you to complete. Then, 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 when? In the midst of Jonah's failure, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. Second time. What an incredible and merciful response God has. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And what differs, the message is identical, but something differs. And clearly, what differs here between the first and the second time is the response. Jonah responds entirely differently the second time. It says, verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Hooray. God is like, great, no more storms. 
Jonah obeys and goes to Nineveh. Why? Or maybe Jonah's just exhausted. Maybe Jonah's terrified. He thinks, well, if I run again, I mean, he's already put a storm out there. How is he going to top that? One commentator, James Bruckner, says this, God has pursued him, that's Jonah, to the gates of death and brought him back. Jonah cannot escape the assignment. There are some of us here today that you are somebody who has had, who was up to, you are up to, you're way beyond second chances. And you're here today and you're thinking, well, I'm done. I mean, I'm coming. I'm coming to church and I'm just ticking it off. Maybe somebody invited you or you've been drawn by something. You say, well, I'm way beyond second chances. There's no hope really that God could use me. Now, he might tolerate me, but he couldn't possibly use me. And I'm here to tell you this morning, God can use you. God has second chances for you. God has third and fourth and fifth and hundredth and thousandth chances. And all he's looking for is you to say, I'm willing to be used. I'm willing to be uh, to put to your purposes, God. I'm open. I've been humbled. And I'm ready. See, the, the, the central truth that we learn here from Jonah's second chance, from Jonah's Late, belated obedience is that Jonah has to become the work of God before he can do the work of God. Jonah's got to experience salvation before he can preach salvation. It's got to move from his head to his heart. It's got to be embodied. There's nothing more repulsive, is there, then somebody who's got all the right phrases, all the right words, all the right technique, but it doesn't have the heart. Some of you who, maybe you've experienced evangelism like this. Yeah, they've got the track, they hand out the track to you and, and all the information's right, it's dotted and the scriptures are cross-referenced seven times and there's no love And it just rings hollow, doesn't it? We've got to become the work of God before we can do the work of God. We've got to allow God to show us his salvation. We've got to allow God to move in us. First, that's the beginning. That's the beginning of revival. It's when God grabs hold of you. And maybe he grabs hold of you, George, if I can, just by the scruff of the neck. Because there's no other way you listen. Sometimes God has to send a storm. You've got to become the work of God. You've got to allow God to go deep in your life. You've got to be hungry for him to go deep in your life. But even that's a gift of God. To put it another way, God has to do salvation to Jonah, for Jonah, before he can work salvation through Jonah. So how do we become the work of God? That's the question. And what's interesting is for both Jonah and Nineveh, the answer is the same. And the answer is this, and this is the key idea today. 
Jonah and, in fact, Nineveh have to learn to go backwards in order to go forwards. The Christian life is a life of continually going backwards. Back to the start. Back to first principles in order to go forwards. If we run off forwards in our own strength, we, we become so quickly misdirected. The Christian life is waking up, putting your feet on the floor and saying, Lord, okay, back to the start. So yesterday I thought it was pretty impressive. Yesterday I did some stuff. I, I, I think I probably impressed you, Lord. I, I shared my faith and I, I was kind to some people and I parented quite well. I was even patient once or twice, Lord. And uh, am I ready to move on to the next level, the seventh heaven, the seventh level of heaven? And, and the Lord's like, no, I want you back at the start. Would you come back to the start? That's where, I just want you back at the start. That's where, that's where it begins. Jonah has to learn. He's going to have to go backwards if he wants to go forwards. He's going to have to retreat if he wants to advance. And this for us today is a surprising message and it is an offensive message. Because we as a culture have been fed up. We've grown up on the idea of progress. That through our technological advancement and scientific accomplishment, we will bring the earth, bring all chaos to subjection. And one day the kingdom, not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of our own gods will come. And we'll live lives free of sickness, free of doubt and disease. And all our homes will be heated from a distance. This is the myth of progress, and it is the myth that's driven so much of what happens in our culture. And we cannot fathom it when stuff starts to go wrong. And part of the reason we can't fathom it is not because the Bible doesn't tell us it will go wrong. In fact, the Bible speaks very clearly about the fact that things will go wrong. But I see so many people tripped up in their faith when things start going wrong. And the reason is, is because they've actually bought into the secular myth of progress. And when things start to go wrong, they feel like they've been lied to. And the answer is you have been lied to, but not by God. There will be trouble of many kinds. A secular vision of progress is we want the kingdom, but without the king. We want to move forward in advance, but we're not willing to retreat and submit and surrender to God first. And so we don't like this message because we're used to this idea of progress. You know, just this last week, we were, I, I, as many of you are, as increasing number of us are, part of a few group. Uh, and a few of us, literally where a few of us just meet every couple of weeks to pray for each other, to support each other. And we were just discussing together, sort of laughing and joking about, uh, I don't even... I don't know if you're aware of this technology, the Nest, I think it's probably run by Google, but basically Nest, the Nest technology is you can sort of control the heat of your home from a distance. And you can, if you're away and you want the, temp the temperature to be changed while you're away, you can sort of plug into your Nest thing on your phone and you can turn on your, your heating so when you get home it's nice and toasty. And we were just joking about this. And, you know, many of you might have a nest. Great, fine. Um, let me just say this. Google knows everything about you. If you've got nests, Google is watching you around your house in your underpants. There's an image. 
But here's the thing. We're sort of laughing about it, thinking, look, if I've got, if I've got the Nest system and I can control... I'm still just controlling my heating. I mean, it's basically, it's still sort of heated, or it's not. <laughs> it's not that much of a revolution, is it? And the myth of progress promises us so much, and actually, when you drill down, what do we actually get? And the lie is that we can have progress without repentance. We can have movement forward without first going back. And the story, the message of the book of Jonah is clearly telling us the opposite thing. That in order to move forward, we need to understand we need rescue. We need salvation, not self-help. Not technology alone. We need salvation And we get salvation by going back to the start. Look at Jonah. Progress is of no value if you're headed in the wrong direction. If your direction isn't set aright, progress is just taking you further away from where you need to be. Jonah needs to go back to the start. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Nineveh was a very large city. By the way, this is the... Now, I'm going to demonstrate what repentance looks like for Jonah. A very large city. Now, uh, Nineveh was probably a fairly large city, but it it wasn't large enough so that it would take three days to go through. So either what's happening here is that Jonah's going through the whole surrounding region, or some say he's going to every single public square, preaching the message and moving on. And that may have taken three days. But what's interesting here about this idiom, a very large city, is that uh, literally in the original language, literally this phrase means a great city to God. Nineveh was a great city to God. And I think this is the point. This is what actually the text is getting at. That Nineveh is a a great city to God. It matters hugely to God. And this is the very thing that Jonah has been unwilling to capture all along. And for him, going back to the start is about beginning to see the whole situation before him through God's eyes. So he's been looking at Nineveh through his own eyes. And he hates Nineveh. They're evil. The Assyrians there behead people and do all sorts of ridiculous and barbaric things. But you see, at the beginning of the story in Jonah 1, 1, Jonah was looking at the story and the situation through his own eyes. He didn't understand that Nineveh was a great city to God. He didn't understand that God's heart burned for Nineveh, and so he was unwilling to respond. And so salvation begins with seeing through God's eyes, and that's why we need to go back to the start. Every day to say, God, how are you seeing it? Lord, there's this person in my life, and honestly, I think they're a bit of a numpty. They behave toward me consistently in this way, and they annoy me and irritate me, God. They're really, really annoying. And maybe even they've wounded me significantly, and honestly, my instinct here is to crush them. I want to wound them back. That's the human response, isn't it? That's Jonah 1.1. But actually, going back to the start, it's saying, Lord, but how do you see them? Maybe they're a great person to you. Just as Nineveh was a great city to God, maybe this person is a great, city, a great person to you. How can I begin to see them through your eyes? That's what this redirection is about. 
And the beginning of the renewal that God wants to do in all of us, is the, it begins when we ask that question. God, would you allow me to see myself and everyone around me through your eyes? Because salvation is first and foremost always about seeing. It's about vision. It's about seeing the world as God sees it. And the biblical word for this retreat, this new sight, is repentance. And repentance is the pathway to salvation, which is another way of saying the way back is the way forward. Journey began by proclaiming the message. Journey began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Church, it is an eight-word sermon. It is possible. I may never get there, but I want to give you hope and faith that one day you may hear an eight-word sermon and you will rejoice. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's a five-word sermon. Pithy. Love it, Jonah. But it is an incredibly effective sermon. And here is the sermon. 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. This word overthrown, hapak, it means turned over. Or it can mean turned over, which means literally destroyed. But it can mean turned around. And it's like Jonah's message presents Nineveh with a choice. You can be turned over. You can be destroyed. And that's what will happen if you don't repent. Or you can be turned around. Which is it that you want? And what we see through this two-edged message is that Nineveh responds wanting the latter. It wants to be turned around. And there is wholesale repentance from the greatest, the king, to the least. And it's an uprising which begins on the street. I think that's important. It begins with the least. It begins on the street and the king grasps hold of it and only then gets on board with it. This is a picture of revival and there are three elements to it. I just want to pick them out really quickly. Firstly, there is belief in God. The Ninevites, verse 5, believed God. Secondly, there is seeking God, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Sorry, it says before, a fast was proclaimed. There is simple, so simple faith. Secondly, there is seeking God through fasting. In other words, there's humble seeking. And finally, it says here, they repent of their evil ways when the king's speaking. Literally, that means the way of their walking. And they repent of the violence in their hands. In other words, what we might say there's transformed living. This is what repentance looks like for them. And thus they receive God's forgiveness. This is a stunning reversal. This most brutal, barbaric nation in all of history turns on a five-word sermon. Jonah shows up. Hey, Nineveh. His heart's not in it. We see that in chapter 4. Do you want to be overturned? Or do you want to turn around? Five words? Maybe a bit more than that, just then. And they respond, they turn. What does this mean for us today? What does it look like for us to move backwards, to go backwards, that we might go forward? 
What does that frightening biblical word, that dusty, starchy biblical word, that is actually the most exciting and beautiful word, repentance, mean for us today? Is there any relevance today to repentance? What does Jesus say? What's his message? What is his essential, central message? It is this. The kingdom of God is available. Repent and believe the good news. That is to say that the message of Jesus is the message of Jonah. That if you're going to lay hold of this extraordinary gift of life that is available in God, in Jesus, secured through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Not just a way to life, but the way to life, the way to salvation. That means the way to fulfillment in all of its ways. If you're going to lay hold of that, it means learning how to repent. Or as Bono said it, if you want to kiss the sky, you better learn how to kneel. On your knees, boy. I realize I now speak to a pre-post-U2 generation. It'll be even worse this evening. Even Beyonce's old hat in the evening service, I've got nothing to offer. The important thing you need to hear is that the message hasn't changed. And the message that I address you this morning with is the same. Repent and believe. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Turn around. As Bob Dylan said, even worse, change your way of thinking. And for us, it's the same as it was for the Ninevites. It begins with simple faith. It's amazing how quickly and easily distracted we are with complexity. Right? In life in general, do you not find it day to day? Just things are so difficult. You know, I just, I just want to go down the shop. And there are all these decisions to make, and then I get to the shop, and there's... I just want some cereal for breakfast. And there's like a thousand cereals. I just want one. Are any of them nutritious? <laughs> no. I'm going to develop an allergy to all of them. It's so complex. And yet, repentance is all about simplicity. It's being drawn back to simple faith. It's about turning away from false gods. Idols. The Ninevites willing to put away all of their idols. We all have idols. Repentance is about chopping their heads off the idols. And the idols are the things that you give ultimate devotion to. That you spend your time and your attention and your affection around. And your idols may be a process. For some of us, our idol, our greatest idol is being in control. We love it. I do. Oh, yeah, it's one of my faves. And, and you know it's an idol because when it's taken from you, you feel just empty. You get angry and impatient. When you take somebody's God off them, they get angry. So if somebody takes control from me, I feel angry. Maybe for you it's pleasure. Your ultimate devotion is to pleasure. And so you, 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 you seek pleasure, but you also avoid pain. You avoid anything that might be difficult because your God happens to be pleasure. Maybe it's independence. It's related closely to the one of control. 
get really irritated when people tell you to do stuff. Maybe it's safety. You're obsessed with staying safe. You go down the shops and you fill out a full risk assessment. Lest you stub your foot on the ground. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your career. Simple faith says, look, those things are gifts. But I'm not going to worship them. I'm going to worship the giver of those gifts. Simple faith says, I have expectations of God. I expect him to be good. I expect him to show up. I expect expect him to move in my life. It is about recovering simple faith. It is about finding the place of humble seeking. This is the birthplace of faith. We get on our knees before God and we say, look, Lord, I actually don't have it all together. In fact, I don't really have very much together at all. And I've been trying to fake it to those people. But before you, I can really be honest. I don't know what's next. Can you help? Humbly seeking. For them, it looked like fasting. Are you hungry to see more of God? That potentially is the most important question you'll ever hear anybody ask you. Are you hungry to see more of God? Maybe the answer is no. Are you hungry to be hungry? Are you open to being hungry for more of God? Are you willing to seek him humbly? Finally, transformed living. Simple faith and humble seeking reveal themselves in transformed living. The repentance that the Ninevites pursue is a different way of living. Are you hungry? Are you willing at least to allow God to mess with your life? Your actual habits your patterns, your spending, your relationships, the stuff that actually you do. Repentance is an invitation to allowing you to do that. Consistently through history, we've seen that those who pursue such transformation through repentance are able to bring change around them. That is why the church on fire is the way, I believe, we'll see the city made alive. To put it another way, corporate renewal begins with personal renewal. And my prayer for every one of us, for myself before you, I am a selfish prayer, is for a personal renewal. I am seeking a personal revival in my faith. That is what I long for for myself more than anything else. And I want that for you. I want that more than I want anything else for you. I want your faith to come alive. And I want you to know and take responsibility for the bit that, you, that only you can take responsibility for. Because beneath it all, repentance is a gift of God. What would it look like to see a community of people on their knees before God, simply asking him for faith, humbly seeking him and opening themselves to transformed living? What would that look like for you? Why don't we pray?